Today, I'd like to welcome production sound mixers David McMillan and Bill Kaplan, who between them have multiple CAS, BAFTA and Oscar nominations. They have worked on some of the most memorable and iconic films of the last 40 years. David is now a lecturer in the film program at USC, and Bill continues to work in sound today. What we hope to do is to look at the work, methodology, and insight into some of those films and directors that they've worked with in their careers. But first of all, I'd like to take them both back to the 1970s with a little clip from two of their early films. Spiders in this area have organized themselves into an aggressive army. I've never seen anything like it. One minute they weren't there, and the next minute they were everywhere. Jump, Atta girl! Listen, there's thousands of them out there. We'll never make it. Why haven't we heard from the sheriff? He must know we're trapped in here. I'm telling you, I don't think we should chance it. Your nightmares will never be the same. Kingdom of the Spiders. The next victim could be you. Someone is stealing life for sale to the highest bidder. Sounds like it's going to cost me a lot of money. Worth it, Mr. Gregory. Worth it. Until the attacks are stopped, no one is truly safe. We think you're next on the list. Cardiac arrest. Anybody's heart is available. Don't say anything or you're dead. Even yours. So you'll have to pardon me for starting off with those two clips, but obviously, you know, we all have films in our past <laughs> that, um, you know, bring back great memories. So I thought I'd start with Bill. So Kingdom of the Spiders, William Shatner, was that part of the Roger Corman days? I think so. <laughs> um, this is sort of like, this is your life <laughs> when they, they get your first grade teacher. <laughs> uh, yeah. Kingdom of the Spiders. Um, interesting movie. Uh, Earl and I had to drive to my boom man to Cottonwood, Arizona, ourselves. And the production manager, we got there at 11 at night. We wanted to go to sleep. And he took us, he wanted to show us the location. And he took us to an abandoned uh, RV park with old RVs in it and wanted to show us inside the RVs. And we realized he wanted us to stay there. That was the nature of the film, and we had a $5 uh, per diem expense account at the uh, Five and Dime to eat, and you could decide, you could get a burger and water or a sandwich and a milkshake. You had to figure that stuff out, and we didn't get paid. You didn't get paid? We didn't get paid, so not for about two weeks, so the grips organized a circle, and we sat around, we sat down, the production manager, and... Uh, waited for a bank guy to come pay us before he could get up out of the circle. That was Kingdom of the Spiders. So, David, uh, you heard from uh, Cardiac Arrest. Mary so. Mintz, the director. Yeah. I'm his Facebook friend. <laughs> I haven't had anything to do with him. I didn't even see the movie. You know, I was so over it. By the time I'd finished it, I, I wasn't interested in seeing it. didn't play very much. Well, that's interesting you mentioned Facebook because I was going to say that, you know, today we're in the, uh, it's a culture of social media, internet, and the sound community is pretty much everybody knows each other in this time. Can you both bring us back to the 70s and explain to us a little bit about what the sound community was like here in Los Angeles and in terms of certainly uh, the CAS as an organization has been around since the 60s. But how did you guys meet, uh, not just you, but in terms of a community 
did you know other mixers? I mean, because at that time, you would have had uh, Jack Solomon working, Jim Webb, uh, Jim Alexander. Did you know each other? And what was the community like then? I had met um, Jack Solomon when he was doing King Kong. Uh, Lee Mendelson was doing a documentary on the beast, on the monster. And we came down to shoot in the back lot of, uh, of MGM. And I went up to Jack and introduced myself. And he said, uh, one of these days you'll get yours. Because <laughs> I said, I've been talking to him about his Oscar. He says, one of these days you'll get yours. And Jack Solomon, certainly in terms of films, he had worked with John Wayne on the Alamo, had worked with Barbara Streisand on Hello, Dolly. So he was a, a big fixture here in the Hollywood scene. Did you meet Jack yourself? I did. I did. I, I asked him about walkie-talkies, and uh, he was a funny guy. But um, I was sort of on the other side. I, I was doing anti-war films uh, over the shoulder, I was with some subversive groups. I was very much, I was very political, very, very left-wing at the time. I was actually uh, pre-med UCLA, and I, I couldn't go on because of my political feelings. I, I got drafted. I went, uh, went in another direction politically. I'll just leave it at that. And um, so I was a mixer and cameraman. I actually started with Roger Corman as a DP, and um, shot a lot of features for him. Also knew how to do sound from the documentary days. Did sound for Richard Nixon in the White House in the very early days. But um, I was not part of the establishment. I was very much anti-establishment. Um, I, Jeff Wexler and I, I did some commercials with his father it was Haskell Wexler. Haskell, yeah, Haskell Wexler and, and um, Wexler Hall, Connie Hall, and they had an ad company. Um, and Jeff and I uh, got attorneys together and sued 695 to get in. And we had to prove a um, certain number of consecutive days of employment. We had to go back to all our producers. It was very hard, to, and Haskell was very helpful in that. Um, and we got in that way. Otherwise, uh, only for 90 days, the courts opened it up for 90 days. We got in, got closed up again. So there's a great definition between those that worked non-union and those that worked union. Vicious line. Yeah. And in my first uh, picture, my 54th feature, my first union picture, Animal House, uh, I was not a celebrity. Uh, I was given a lot of broken equipment. I, I knew that would happen. Uh, I brought all my own equipment, um, and I wouldn't have been able to do it with their equipment. So at that time, the different studios had their own sound departments. Animal High Switch Studio, was that under? Universal. Dick Stump. They had their own production department, mm -hmm. Warner Brothers, 20th mm -hmm. Century Fox. Right. But because I had done Kentucky Fried Movie previously with John Landis, um, he, he got me, he re requested me and against the studio's will, I was hired. And David, what were your experiences at that time? Was it a different route for you in terms well, yeah, of becoming I mean, I, in uh, union? We had an apprenticeship in this, at the CBC in Toronto where we learned all phases of production, like, you know, on sound, um, you know, like with the, the telecity chain, the effects and, uh, actual TV mixing plus 
we actually had some Keller equipment there at the CBC at the same time. So we played with it. <laughs> that was my knowledge. Um, but uh, of course, you always say you can do everything because you know you'll learn it soon enough. In those days, it wasn't all that difficult. Uh, my first job as a sound guy, I mean, I had an Agra. I had a 642, um, a heavy a dynamic microphone, uh, no boom pole. You couldn't get it on a boom pole. It'd break your arms so much. Um, we had a couple of Sennheiser lavaliers that you'd you know, hang on a cord and you'd hide it behind a tie if you wanted to be. ECM you know. 50. <laughs> I know. This is before ECM oh. 50s. This was the Sennheisers, you know, the sort of square. Oh, yeah. 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 We, we didn't have Where these. With the lanyard. <laughs> the lanyard, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I just started doing commercials and, and the odd documentary and, you know, there wasn't very much feature, which one of the features was cardiac arrest. <laughs> so did that uh, clip bring back a few memories for you? Yeah. Uh, you know, I just, I, I, I didn't realize it, what it was until you said it. And then I, you know, kind of clicked in where they, they're stealing people's hearts. Yeah. So Bill, uh, let me get to you with, um, your father was in this business. Yes. What, what exactly did he do? He was a unit production manager at MGM for 31 years. Um, I, he would take me to the set often when I was four or five and I, uh, I got to watch Gene Kelly dancing in the rain. I was sitting on the camera dolly. I got to watch Bogart push the African queen with a lot of grips underneath. So did, did your dad influence you in terms of a career path? I don't think so. I mean, I, I like the studios because all the executives on Saturday brought their kids and they kept a projectionist there when we could watch Tom and Jerry for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> um, it had no intrigue to me. It was it was just what it was. It was I, I mean, I saw amazing movies with Brando and you know, crazy scenes, but it was just to a kid. It was just you know, dad at work. And uh, is there any specific film in terms of memories that um, you started to take an interest in the technical side? No. At all? No. No. Mm -mm. I was really interested in medicine. Now, you, you mentioned that you went to the set of Fantastic Voyage. Is that right? Yes. Because yeah. that was uh, yeah. Belfast actor Stephen Boyd. Yeah. That was over at 20th Century Fox, big stages. Did you meet the sign team? or at that No, time? we were there on a weekend, and I just saw the set. Um, Forbidden Planet, I was on that set. Um, it was just normal to me. I had six uncles, all worked in film. And what areas did they work in? Uh, editorial, costume. Um, my one uncle was head of costume at Paramount. His son was head of costume at, at uh, MGM. Later became head of health and welfare. Um, 22 cousins in the industry. But they were all in the industry, and I was that kid, you know, making anti-war, anti-government films. So I was not a favorite of the family whatsoever. Wouldn't return calls. Um, so in my introduction to film was really through Roger Corman. UCLA did a lot of uh, unpol un 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 uh, unpopular films. It used through UCLA. So it was, what was that defining moment where you said, you know, I think sound is where I'm going to go yeah. direction-wise? Yeah. Um, I was living in, at my commune, um, and the phone rang, 
they said, we have this picture coming. Would you like to shoot it or do sound, or, or do sound on it? And I said, what does it pay? <laughs> and they said, 600 a week with equipment for sound and 250 for DP. And I said, that's fascinating. Explain that. And they said, well, sound guy, there's no glory in sound. You've got to pay the sound guy. But it's a stepping stone position for camera, so we don't have to pay that much. And I thought for one moment, and I said, I'll be the sound guy. <laughs> and that was a career split. So it could have all changed if the numbers had been different. Yeah. So did you uh, get your own equipment? My, uh, when I was graduated, I got a master's in film at UCLA, and my dad bought me a Inagra 4L uh, for a graduation present. So was your dad excited that you had decided to use sound? I don't think he was at all. I don't think he wanted me in the film business. I mean, um, he went through multiple families, divorces, and he was always on location, ended up living uh, in London, mainly, um, and he saw what it does uh, to families, so he was not in favor of it at all. So film, the industry, has just been a fabric of your, of your life, really? It has been. His last film was A Sorcerer, and uh, with Friedkin, and he really got burned out by that, but, I mean, he'd done Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago and and the Ten Commandments. And I remember I walked through the gate at Universal and on big stage 12, and we were doing, I think, Back to the Future, and he was in the white executive office. And I just thought, how strange. You know, he's at the very end of his career, and he's had a whole career of this. And I'm at the same studio. I'm very, being very proud of myself. But he could not and I sort of got it, you know, and it, it didn't hurt me, didn't pain me, um, but it was sort of unique. And David, you're originally from Belfast with yeah. no family in the film industry. Well, my dad was in, was a, a stage manager um, and then he ran uh, remotes for the CBC. And I'd been like yourself, Bill, going with my dad. You know, from the time I was 10, because we, we emigrated when I was 10 to the studios with him. And um, I kind of, I loved hanging out in the set and like to watch the operation and the cameras moving and the boom operator and all the communications back and forth. It was kind of fascinating. So when I got my, what they call the 1B apprentice, um, you spent one afternoon like from noon till six o'clock, one till six o'clock with a technical instructor and a technical producer. And you learn the theory of lenses. You learn how an orc on camera works. You know, you learn how you create a picture and uh, you learn, learn everything. You learn how to light a set. You learn how to set, you know, grip, how to work a, um, you know, perambulator boom. There were more Richardsons in those days. And uh, then you learn the, the whole chain of, you know, audio and picture going out to the, the transmission tower and beaming it out to the, you know, the tr city of Toronto with a big tower on Jarvis Street. So it's kind of fun. So if I could look back at, uh, let's see, on your uh, Roger Corbin days, what was in your sound package? What did you have as your recorder, mixer, microphones? Did you have many radio mics? back then? Um, I think I had two Vegas. 
Mm-hmm. And 55s. Open the lid, scratch the contacts, close it, and stay away from chain link fences. I took a broom pole and put the receiver and just out of frame followed the actor dragging a cable. Um, radio mics weren't really good in those days. Uh, but I did a picture in Mexico with one suitcase that had a Nagra and it had two cables wrapped around the Nagra and an, uh, an 805 maybe and, and an RE15. And what about you, David? What was your uh, Nagra, first kit? Nagra 3 with a little uh, three-channel mixer that was really not a mixer. It was just Perfectone? Basic. No, it was made by Nagra. And it, oh, yeah. it was like a, it was sort of not, not a, it was like a reverse mixer. Like everything could be in hot and then all you're doing was when you turn you it up. Gain control. Thing. Gain control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, it, it, it got its par from, from the Nagra. Uh, I had a, a 642 and I had a couple of two of the Sennheisers, uh, Sennheiser Lavaliers. Um, and what the heck else did I have? I had a short. I had a, I had a short dynamic microphone that was useless. I never used it. Didn't have a boom pole, but I was doing mostly documentaries, except for when I went on stage. And then I'd be working. I worked with BK fives, on on poles on a on a perambulator. Um, BK five being. BK, it was an RCA BK five, and it's a directional combination ribbon and dynamic microphone. And in terms of your crew, who did you have in your team back? Back then, Bill, um, I I had one boom man. When when it got big, you know, we were offered a, a sound position on a Roger Corman series of films with Jim Brown, the famous football player, called The Slams. And I went to Venice, and Earl was on a two story ladder painting a building. We were in film school together, and I said, "Roll down the window, Earl. Want to work on a feature?" This was Earl Sampson. Earl Sampson, and he said, "Sure." And he put the brush in the can, walked down the stairs, and we went off to work on a feature. <laughs> the thing <laughs> stayed there for about a year. Half-painted apartment house. Yeah. What about you, David? Who's your team? Uh, my first boom operator was David Kirshner. And I got him out of, he was actually doing transfers for Richard Birnbaum. At, uh, uh, he had a transfer studio in San Francisco. And I brought him in. Um, to boom on some commercials that I was doing, some Ford commercials, Mercury commercials. And he stuck with me for quite a few years, and then I got him going on on documentaries as well, too, told him to get his own gear. One thing that's common between both of you, you've worked with directors time and time again, and I just want to look at some films of John Landis. What's this? What? This car. This stupid car. Where's the Cadillac? The Caddy. Where's the Caddy? The what? The Cadillac we used to have. The Bluesmobile. I traded it. Traded the Bluesmobile for this? No, for a microphone. A microphone? Okay, I can see that. What the hell is this? This was a bargain. I picked it up at the Mount Prospect City Police Auction last spring. It's an old Mount Prospect police car. They were practically giving them away. Well, thank you, Al. 
The day I get out of prison, my own brother picks me up in a police car. So, 1980, John Landis, this is uh, maybe the third or fourth time you've worked with him. You've done Animal House, Kentucky Fried Movie, The Blues Brother. Tell us a little bit about that experience. The Blues Brothers. The Blues Brothers. Um, most of the people are dead who <laughs> were on it. Um, it was an amazing adventure. Uh, they sent me off to, to uh, follow the band for many months uh, to do the record and, um, and put tracks together. And none of that ever really worked out, but it was quite an adventure. I learned a lot about playback. I learned a lot about uh, live record. I, I hadn't done those things before. I learned about putting playback uh, speakers out of phase and recording, keeping people dead center and recording them live. So all of the Blues Brothers, the vocal and harmonica were all live. Um, all the music was playback. Um, it was an amazing adventure. And in terms of your... Uh, work with with John Landis was that a particularly difficult one? Was he accommodating? There was n no, <laughs> no collaboration <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, everyone was sort of very busy doing their own thing, and uh, uh, a very interesting group of people who are very capable of doing their own thing. Um, I don't know that they were capable of collaboration at all on a human level. But a lot of artistry came out of that, I thought. John and, you know, I spent months and months uh, uh, lying on the backseat floor, which was a steel floor. Uh, and if I could rustle up a Fernie pad or two, uh, and my head on a sandbag, um, I recorded a lot that way. And I had a, um, a, a flat 144 Ray-Bans that the prop department would give me because every time we'd stop, People would rush the car, civilians, and Belushi would give his glasses away. So I had the slate back there and the thing of glasses and a lot of tape. Was John Landis multiple cameras, single camera? I expect it was one camera. Today you're spoiled for choices in terms of how you can cover a car. You've got digital yeah. hard disk recorders, yeah. radio mics that aren't Vegas, which are yeah. obviously yeah. better quality. A lot of things were done um, in the center console underneath going up. Uh, I forget if I had Sheps's at that point. Um, I got very big into Sheps uh, at the uh, sun visor, over the sun visor. Um, Roger Corman movies, we did tons of car stuff, self-drive. Uh, and I would just take a, a 405 or whatever and a Rycote two sandbags, center console, straight up. And when you f uh, saw the finished film, how did you feel? Brilliant. David, your first Oscar nomination uh, was for The Right Stuff. Say there, Jaeger. Sir? We were just talking to uh, Slick here about the sound barrier. Is that right? And we feel that the X1 is ready to have a go at it. We think the X1's got the answer to go beyond Mach 1. If there is any beyond. So what do you think, Yeager? Well, I'll tell you what, half these engineers never been off the ground, you know. I mean, they're liable to tell you that the sound barrier's a brick wall in the sky. It'll rip your ears off if you try to go through it. If you ask me, I don't believe the damn thing even exists. 
Waitress, a drink from Mr. Yeager here. No, thanks, I got one. So, do you think you want to have a go at it? I might. But uh, since, as you say, this sound barrier doesn't really exist, uh, how much... How much you got? No, I'm just joking. The Air Force is paying me already. Ain't that right, sir? Well, sure, Yeager, but... So when do we go? So Sam Shepard is Chuck Yeager in mm-hmm. The Right Stuff, directed by Philip Kaufman. I listened to that clip just be- before we sat down here, and it just very natural sounding and uh, I was talking with the engineers here and uh, we were saying is that being sound designed the beautiful creak to the door Mm -hmm. and also just the the wind and it just no we couldn't get rid of the wind if we wanted to (laughs) but it did sound to me it sounded good and we were using I had you know I think I had four ships at the time the collect cables I did the same thing as Bill with the collect cables uh, in the the visor and car stuff would you change anything? Would you say, God, I wish I had a multi-track recorder? Well, yeah. Um, but you don't think about that at the time, you know. You've got the tools you've got and, you know, you you find ways to sort of, you know, manufacture decent sound. You do your best to control the atmosphere and um, and you go for it. What was the dynamics like on well, the set? Because I've worked with Ed Harris and an amazing actor and he gets He's very frustrated yeah. if he does nail his performance. Yeah, I've worked with Ed a bunch of times. He's he's really a good guy. I played golf with him. He's a <laughs> club thrower when he doesn't make a butt. <laughs> Duck. Um, but no, the, cl- the crew really got along and the cast really got along. And they, we all, when we were shooting in uh, the Bay Area, the, the hangout was uh, uh, Tosca's, which is a, a bar on Columbus Street. And they have a back room with a pool table. And uh, we would all kind of congregate there every so often. And, you know, it was a good it was a good scene. It was a lot of fun. A lot of good people. But a, a great AD, uh, Chuck Myers, uh, who's no longer with us. But uh, he, he was a total character. And he kept everything light. So when... Um Bill, I just want to uh, look at your collaboration with Robert Zemeckis. 17 films, is that right? Projects. 17 projects. Yeah. Okay. So what was the first project you worked with him on? Romancing the Stone. Jungle, Rain, Difficult? Uh, unique. Uh, I went there a week ahead and and uh, I, I sort of speak Spanish. And I, I went to the hardware store and uh, I weld, and uh, I brought a kid up to the uh, the hotel room, and I bought a lot of supplies, and I made some pretty clever rain gadgets for Sennheiser mics um, with hog's hair and, and certain kinds of rubber that wouldn't hear the rain hit the hog's hair. And, um, and when I look back at, at myself, you know, I'm sort of into construction, um, I, I maybe should have been an engineer. I, I engineer quietness to the best of my ability. I don't know about computers. I am not an electronics guy at all. I'm, I'm the worst at that. Um, and because of that, I keep uh, crews with me who are really computer savvy, and they do it all. Um, so in that, in that film... Uh, you know, I quieted waterfalls. I quieted um, fuselages of airplanes during horrendous storms. Um, 
that's sort of my forte is is sort of the physical manipulation of of reality to uh to just quiet things down and then anyone can sort of record well you're george mcfly yeah who are you say what do you let those boys push you around like that for well they're bigger than me stand tall boy have some respect for yourself don't you know if you let people walk over you now, they'll be walking over you for the rest of your life. Look at me. You think I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this slop house? Watch it, Goldie. No, sir. I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to night school. And one day, I'm going to be somebody. That's right. He's going to be mayor. Yeah, I'm going to... Mayor. Now, that's a good idea. I could run for mayor. A colored mayor, that'll be the day. You wait and see, Mr. Carruthers. I will be mayor. I'll be the most powerful man in Hill Valley, and I'm going to clean up this town. Good. You can start by sweeping the floor. So, Back to the Future, that mm-hmm. was uh, the first one. Everybody's familiar with this, the fact that Eric Stoltz was originally Marty McFly, mm-hmm. and after mm-hmm. many weeks of filming, got replaced with Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm. What, what was it like on, on those early days on Back to the Future? Well, that was interesting. You know, we, we were doing this movie and, and um, the, the uh, Marty, the first Marty, uh, was very pensive and dark and philosophical and, and the director kept cut, you know, and he'd walk off and have a talk with him and say, you two bubblegum and you, you're on a skateboard. You have no other problems than that. You know, you're playing this thing way too heavy. And uh, he was sort of a method actor, and he had to have his apartment completely redone with the original furniture that was on the set, and all the clothes had to hang in his apartment. And um, it, it just didn't work. And Zemeckis told us that he and Spielberg watched a lot of uh, the dailies of the film and over a weekend and decided that it... it it, need, it needed to be redone, and Zemeckis couldn't believe the suggestion by um, um, Spielberg that cha- recast. You know, so for weeks we did over the shoulders and, and different things and waited uh, for the second M- Marty II to uh, be able to be with us. And we would shoot only between, I think, 9 o'clock at night and 11.30 at night for a week or two until he got off his show and became available. So tonally, did you know immediately once Michael J. Fox stepped into that role, this is a whole different movie? Oh, yeah. He was great. He was a a young kid having fun and excited. And yeah, it was a completely different spirit altogether. And did Zemeckis always chart the side as a three-parter? No, not at all. I think um, uh, the success of one... Uh, brought them to, I think it was Sid Scheinberg's office, and they promoted two, uh, which, I, as, I, as I'm as i told the story, it w- didn't go over successfully well. And they walked to the door, and Scheinberg said, hold it on a minute. If you do two and three together, uh, because Marty's going to age, uh, if you can do that, I'll think about it. So... Um, it was great. We went in a, in a jet to a little town, Sonora, California, and, and we got in a van. We went up to this mountain next to the train track, and we had real estate corner stakes, and we marked out the town. And we came back four months later. There was the town. Fascinating. So with uh, two and three, very different 
in terms of time periods, uh, any particular one which was more difficult. Uh, because in number two, there was a lot more split screen work and Marty playing off himself. Uh, presumably it was earpieces, earwigs. Did you have extra people assisting well, there? There was, there was a gadget that came from San Francisco, the Tondro, which was sort of a motion control gadget that could um, start the camera, f-stop, focus, pan, tilt, move the dolly, all by RPM, you know. Sounds very noisy. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. But it allowed, um, you know, p different pass, A pass, um, B pass, actor on one side, same actor in a different dress uh, costume on the other side, actually pouring juice in the other's, you know, uh, glass. So you had a uh, in in ear earpieces. Was that uh, ear loop system? Or? And that that was uh, I think it was an induction system that mm -hmm. we had. With uh, that technology, was there a lot of pressure for it to work the first time? Because you know you've got a lot limited time to work with Michael J. Fox, Robert Zemeckis, very technical director. It was difficult all around, and it was hard that everything would work at the same time because we're using VistaVision cameras, 70 millimeter cameras turned sideways uh, with these huge blimps that we made that were still noisy because the thing is just screaming, passing a lot of film, spro no. sprocketed film. Were you proactive in then getting those blimps? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. A physical thing. Yeah, I can deal with a physical thing. And... um uh, but to get all the departments working at once, you know, um, people hanging upside down, going through rooms, uh, a lot of things triggering all at once. And uh, Zemeckis was brilliant. You know, I'd, when he'd start explaining something, I kept a post-it and I'd run out because he it just comes off the top of his head. He'd say, A pass. Marty does this, B-pass, Marty does that. But we need something else. We need a C-pass to do a transition. We need um, a tree limb so that a shadow passes. And none of us would get it, but we'd write it down. And uh, when you go watch it, it was like, that's genius. With 17 collaborations, what landed you that first job on Romancing the Stone? Um, Michael Douglas was the producer. And uh, I went to an interview in, in uh, Bel Air, and you had to park your car on this little road and walk through this ivy hill to a little guest house. I walked in, and it's Michael Douglas, and he said, how should I interview you for sound? I, I really don't know exactly what you guys do. If, should I have a broken Nagra here and watch you try and repair it? <laughs> And I said, I think that's a great idea. You know, I, I don't think anyone's ever considered that before. Um, but uh, it went well. I, we were very comfortable. I was comfortable. Uh, I, I didn't really know who he was, so I wasn't intimidated by him. And uh, I said, I don't like looping. I really like getting natural sound. And um, he said, I... I I guess you're okay. What what can I say? So I was hired. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. If you so desire, an attorney will be provided for you free of cost. Now, do you understand these rights I've just given you, Utah? Do you understand? You understand the rights I've just read you, Utah? Hey, he understands his goddamn rights. 
Jesus Christ, kid. Are you okay? Here, stand up. Get these cuffs off. Leave the cuffs on. Now, get them off. Leave them on. Oh boy. Your partner is an accessory to murder. You understand that, Pappas? You tell there are three dead people. One of them is a police officer, huh? Let me show you something, pal. How does that sit in your stomach, huh? Take your hands off me right now. Very busy, Keanu Reeves. An early Catherine Bigelow film. She's obviously gone on to great prominence with The Hurt Locker, uh, Zero Dark Thirty. Mm-hmm. How is she as a filmmaker? She's an exceptionally nice person. And Tom uh, Peterman was the cameraman. She's got a great visual sense. You know, she's really an artist. Um, she was, you know, a, I think she was a fine art major. But she uh, was shooting with a lot with thousand millimeter lens, so it compressed all this action. And uh, it, it was difficult to some degree, you know, that uh, you know, for a sound mixer, especially when you've got two people walking on the beach, on uh, Nichols Beach, and the cameras at one end of the beach, and Keanu and uh, Laurie Petty. Um, or on the, the other end, you know, and they're in, in wetsuits. And the wind was fortunately at their back. So I, I used the, I was, that was the first film where I got the, the Sankin RS, or Sankin Class 111s. And I just poked it right through the the wetsuit and put the little wind ball, because that's all we had, we had a little, little screen. But, you know, being that the winds were coming at their back, and it was right there. You couldn't see it. It was black. The suit was black. And Lori Petty had a, a like a just a sort of a surfer top on that you use for get, you know prevention from getting like a rash, rash guard. Neck. It's a rash guard. That's what it's called. Yeah. <clears throat> Obviously, I'm not a surfer. Um, and uh, so I had to go halfway. I had to set up halfway down the uh, the the beach. So I had like a cable going to the camera and to the to video. And then I and I had my guys walk with the antenna, you know, because they were quite a ways away. So I had a lot of a lot of RF cable, and they would just bring the actors back, so I wouldn't lose any signal on them. But um, as much as she was creative, it it was always like kind of a you had to think ahead of the game. You had to really anticipate what she was going to do. Um, Did she use multiple cameras on Point Break? No, mostly just one. Yeah, it was pretty small. You know, there was some stuff where they did use some uh, two cameras, like, you know, action scenes. That was the first time I ever put a a Sankin in a tie. And there's a scene with Johnny Utah and with the police chief when they're doing a big walk and talk. Jimmy Muro was the Steadicam operator. You know, we had a big walk all through all kinds of this, like this police station business. And they're walking and talking and just... There's no place to put a boom operator. You know, it's impossible. Even if you had like a, a remote boom, which we didn't have them in those days, unless we, you know, got powering, except uh, external powering for the, the microphones. But um, stuck it in the tie and, you know, stuck it out a little bit. You know, the caution will come back and push it in and we pull it out again. Mm. And nobody's going to know what it is. And it worked just fine. We still fine. say that today. Yeah. Never know yeah. what it is. <laughs> yeah. But she was yeah, she was really terrific. Mm. That sort of has become a cult film too, which kind of amazed me. But well, uh, I noticed in that scene was John McGinley because yeah, John I worked, McGinley, yeah, right, worked exactly. with John McGinley on Any Given Sunday, uh, uh-huh. directed by Oliver Stone, and you've worked with Oliver yeah. on Natural Born Killers and Nixon, uh-huh. and in Nixon, a lot of tie rigs, a lot of Sankins, I guess, in the time. Yeah, uh-huh. Oliver's kind of interesting in that you know <clears throat> he usually starts everything on a on like a, a, a wide shot, it's like a master. 
then it's probably Robert Richardson, but uh, then they would move in after doing the master. He would start the master, then they would move into like, say for instance, um, they do Patnicks and then they'll move in and they'll do Richard and then they'll do a few more cuts around it, you know. And he and he, he insisted that I be there for uh, the walkthrough, you know, that be on the set. Now, a lot of directors don't want you there. You know, they want you out of the way while they work it out. But Oliver, he liked to have my boom operator and me right there. And, and then he would ask us if we were comfortable with what, you know, would, what the movements were. And we usually say yes. And thank you for the, uh, the heads up. And uh, we'd go on about it. Natural One Killers was different. Uh, it was more like shoot from the hip. We didn't know exactly what we were doing. We had the jet engine <laughs> blowing dust in the desert. Uh, I, I, my, I was wheeling my cart all over Hill and Dale to sort of get into you know comfortable positions to be you know recordings. Jump in the back of a of the convertible with a recorder. I know that on Apollo thirteen, uh, that was one of the first uh, films I did multiple recording on uh, with a uh, Tascam D eight. It was a yeah, D eight or eighty nine. It was could have been your model, which is a pain in the ass because you had to format the uh, all the mm -hmm. the, the eight track tapes. And, uh, you, you know, I'd have to send the machine home and have, you know, on the weekend and have my uh, cable guy, you know, format, format mm. like uh, maybe 20 tapes for the week. And so we were always kind of like up to speed for that. But uh, we didn't have, we didn't use multiple tracks there. It was just, uh, it was still in the Stereo Nagra days. Um, I had two Stereo Nagras. Bill, you mentioned on, on Forrest Gump, you used two, two Nagras. Uh, was that for, you needed four tracks or? I never had a stereo Nagra. So you had two Nagras, had two, two mono Nagras. Two mono Nagras. For Forrest Gump. Yeah. So what, how did you use them? I didn't use them in a stereo capacity. Um, I don't remember why I had two. I just remember on the shelf, <laughs> I had two up there. And I, I think back on that, I thought, why did I do that? But I, I just remember mainly it was my last tape show. Then we went to the awful DAT machine. So was it the 4.2? Or did yes. you have the original Niagara 4L no, that your no. dad had bought you? No. Um, I still had it. Um, and both of those got burned up in, uh, in, the, um, in the fire on the back lot at Universal. I lost everything. So did every department. When did that happen? Was that in the show? That was Oscar. The Sylvester Stallone film? Yes. That John Landis directed? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything got burned. Every truck in every department and 63 antique cars. And that's also mm -hmm. when they lost the set for Back to the Future? That's Everything it was went. Yeah, yeah, everything went. So did you get a phone call or were you there when it started? No, uh, the day before my daughter said, uh, I'm going to sing or do a performance at school in third grade or whatever it was. Uh, can you tell the director, he's a parent too, he'll understand um, that you can't be there that day. Uh, you need to come watch me. It's important. And I said, sweetheart, I, I with my job, I just can't do that. And um, so that night... Um, we were, uh, I got a call from the camera operator and he said, are you watching TV? I said, no. He said, turn on channel seven. So, um, Clyde, uh, the camera operator. 
And uh, he said, I said, what's that fire? He said, that's all your equipment. He said, the whole back lot's burned down at Universal. What do you think? And I said, I think I'm going to see my daughter on stage tomorrow <laughs> in school. <laughs> and I got to. It, it was brilliant. Yeah. Transamerica Corporation. They had a big meeting. All the departments, how long before you can get it? We want to be up and running in 10 days. So I said, yeah, if you pay for it. Yeah, you know, write me a check. Write me a check. And they <laughs> said, it's good. I said, no, 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 it's not good. <laughs> I need some guarantees. So, so went to Location Sound, picked up put a me sound in package. a room with a secretary mm-hmm. and a tablet and a pencil, and we went to town. With, uh, with Forrest Gump, did you know you were going to be making a film that was so significant and would strike a chord? And I remember the phone call. I walked down on the back porch, and uh, they pitched the film to me. And I, I honestly thought, you're kidding, you know, about a, a challenged person who... It, it just... But, you know... Zemeckis is, don't ever underestimate that guy, you know. Um, I just thought, okay, cool. Do you owe that brilliance of that film to his authorship? He just, as a filmmaker, can take a subject and take it in a whole different direction. He he and Tom Hanks, you know, the first thing we shot was um, a stroll uh, down the river where Jenny reads the acceptance letter to college and he's not understanding or struggling with the concept that she's going to go away and, and not take him with. And well into the picture, uh, he looked at the dailies and he said, we got to redo that because I, I, I wasn't Forrest yet. He, you know, he hadn't gotten into the part well enough. And uh, and he was sort of right because he was so good after that. You know, he really took on that character. It's the, the only film, I think, at that point that I ever really cried hard on the set. And everyone else was. You know, um, the scene where Forrest takes young Forrest's letter to the gravesite. I mean, I'm I'm emotional just saying it. It was so touching. And we did like seven takes, and Mr. Hanks was completely a different person on every— and everyone was more emotional than the next. Cobb, remove Mr. Hunter from the control room. Get Lieutenant Zimmer in here right now. No, sir, I do not concur, and I do not recognize your authority to relieve me under command under Navy regulations. Cobb, arrest this man and get him out of here. Under operating procedures governing the release of nuclear weapons, we cannot launch our missiles unless both you and I agree. Cobb, what are you waiting for? Sir, this is expressly why your command must be repeated. It requires my assent. I do not give it. And furthermore, you continue upon this course and insist upon this launch without confirming this message first. I will be forced back by the rules of President. Captain, Captain Commanding Officer command. of the USS Alabama, I order you to place the XO under arrest on the charge of mutiny. I say again, I order you to place the XO under arrest on the charge of mutiny. I still get goosebumps listening to that scene. Great scene. Denzel Washington, Gene Hackman, overlapping dialogue uh, on a submarine, limited space for a boomerang. 
Can you take us th through no that boom. scene? No boom. Very low ceilings. Um, what I did is I went in very early. I was, I was, uh, they hired a low rider hydraulic guy company to take this huge platform and, and hydraulically move it. Um, they could move it something like 26 feet, one corner. It really moved a lot and things were placed so they'd fall off edges and such. And uh, when they started to do it, they didn't put the, the they didn't synchronize the hydraulics, so the arms crushed one another, and the, it was a big mess. So they got a, a famous special effects fellow to come in and do a massive wrist pin, which was the right way to do it, with huge hydraulics, only four, and they'd work in tandem. But I'm, again, being physical, I said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to build a block building outside and put your oil compressors out there. I want you to saw cut the stage and put wet sand three feet deep. I want you to take all your hoses and make them four-inch hoses um, and, and do, don't do any right-angle coupling for hydraulics. I mean, I really, that's my forte. And I got, and they did it, and the thing was dead silent. And from there, you could, you know, record. The problem with it is, is the ceiling was just inches over their head. And, you know, there were a lot of people. We had Shepses all over the place. And it really was tons of mixing. I mean, Gene Hackman would have three Shepses for center, right, and left. Um, because being that close, he would be off mic. So I came up, I remember I went to the men's room at, um, and I got on my knees and I said, if I'm not the person to do this, let me go and show me a way. Because I could not, it was the biggest challenge I'd ever had to really mix those, those people. Um, that was a tough film. And that was mixed to two-track. It, it was. I don't know if I used it in that capacity. Mm -hmm. So back in the 70s, you had uh, Jim Webb using multi-track oh, yeah. because of overlapping. Did you get into multi-tracking? Did you ever think of it? Because Crimson Tide, the dynamics in that particular scene are amazing. And the overlapping, you hear every word there. Because right. sometimes, certainly it can be so challenging when you get into overlapping scenes yeah. and directors not wanting to hold the overlaps and then understanding. Right. And we as you know, mixers, you don't want to impede right. the process and affect the performance. Right. But there's sometimes it's just not going to work. Well, that was that, well, that's what I was trying to do with these, with these really close Shepses and, um, and trying to bring everyone in really flat when they overlapped. And then there'd be the, the steering guys way over there that would turn their head and throw some word. Um, I mean, today people have, you know, 10 track recorders, 12, 16, right. 24. Right. That would have been a tool that could have been useful in that situation, but you didn't have that. I didn't have that. And even when two track was there, I would think that I'll bet you I did it uh, a single track. Uh, I solidly believe in giving them a good mix track. And and I when I explained to my kids that I'm teaching, that my fingers were always on the board. And I would always, like, I would be 
you know, anticipating when the moves are going to come. Uh, and I, I wanted to know that when they, they took my master track, my, you know, left to right track, uh, usually they're both the same, um, uh, that they would play that dailies and that track would also be used for production, the post-production sound. Absolutely. You know, that's, that was my philosophy. Like they're still shallowing a bit up there. Do you want to tell them? Is there anything we could do about it? Not now, Flight. And they don't need to know, do they? Copy that. Is this my phone still present in the splash down here? Yeah. We got the, the parachute situation, the heat shield, the angle of trajectory in the typhoon. There's just so many variables I'm a little I know what lost. the problems are, Henry. This could be the worst disaster NASA's ever experienced. With all due respect, sir, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. Expect entry interface in 45 seconds. And on my mark, your velocity will be 35,245 feet per second. Marked. 35 seconds to entry interface. Gentlemen, it's been a privilege flying with you. Apollo 13, tell us what the Vomit Comet was. Vomit Comet was, uh, I forget exactly the model of Boeing, but was a, one of the early uh, four-engine uh, transport jets. And uh, they used it to train the, the astronauts and the feeling of what weightlessness is. Basically, they had a 50-mile corridor over the Caribbean, and uh, a plane would go out, and they'd take it into a 45-degree climb, and kill the engines and let it fall. And they get about 35 to 40 seconds. So put my hand right in front of the mic there. About 35 to 40 seconds of, of uh, floating around. Well, what Ron's idea was to get, uh, we built the sets, the, the landing module and the command module and a tube between the two of them, even though they were not quite in the same kind of orientation they are in real life. And uh, the area where the tube was, I was able to set up uh, uh, two DAP machines, and we had two R tapes. They, they, the flights were only two hours long, and they literally had about 40 minutes in, the, uh, in that zone where they were doing. They do maybe uh, like uh, 30 or so loops, you know, doing the, where they had the uh, weightlessness. And what sequence was this in Apollo 13? There's a bunch of them. There are, there's quite a few. Um, so what I, I knew where the camera was because every situation there would be one camera in the command module and one camera in the, the, the lunar module, the landing module. And so when I knew the action was, I would, I would put the microphones and they would look like they were part of the set. You know, I just hang them in there where, where they, they could talk, you know, like either way. And ran two cables. I'd have the – I'd be on the plane while it's on the ground. would do the, the – uh, the tests, you know, we set the levels. I taped the levels down on both machines. And uh, Todd Hallowell, the producer, all he had to do when he got up into the, the spot was just, boom, hit record. And uh, it was great because when – the one thing that I was kind of worried about was the sound of the engines. But when you kill the engines, all you can hear are the gyros. And that's really what you hear on the uh, lunar module when it's going through space. It's just because I heard like – the uh, the sound of the interior of the of the lunar module and the command module and you can hear the gyros keeping it uh, sort of on course and they would have little 
uh, sort of gas jets of you know to keep the orientation sort of sort of on scope or something. Yeah, it. Uh, but anyway, it worked out really well uh, for uh, for that scene. How big was your uh, department? Just three. There was uh, there was uh, Steve Barman and Kevin Patterson. And in, just in terms of a comm system, did you kind of have that figured out before going into it? Yeah. I pretty much knew what I was going to do. Um, it worked fine. Recorded yeah. to two-track or multi-track? N- actually, uh, oh, you'd, I think you mentioned this I was the first a, time you used the DA. The yeah, DA-98, yeah. Um, but I only used that in in uh, the uh, Houston Master Control. Where we, we At first, we tried to use the microphones that they, they had on them. Uh, they're made by, uh, you probably know them, Bill. They're made by the same guys that make uh, the microphones for most uh, air, you know, air. Yeah. Um, it Carver or something or start with a C. But it didn't sound very good. They, were, they didn't sound real. So what I did was in the microphones when the, there, I, I placed, you know, again, a radio mic. And I had them on, I had like, because they would sometimes be like, you know, five or six people talking at the same time. So I'd have a track for them, but I was also mixing. I was also mixing for a, a mixed track and they, one track was my mix and that was what I wanted them to use. But they had, they had, uh, you know, like uh, isolated tracks for those other guys in case I missed something, you know. And in terms of uh, all the films that you've both worked on, has wardrobe been a crucial part in terms of relationships and <laughs> wiring in your laughing bills. Yeah. There must be a story there. Well, there's just many. It's it's sort of like saying you're proficient at that um, swimming the English Channel, but just before you jump in, we'd like to handcuff you. You know, <laughs> something like that. Um, yeah, that, I mean that's the challenge. You get it all together, and then wardrobe comes up with a a skin-tight rubber suit, you know, that goes up over their chin or something. And you can't touch it, you know, costs a million dollars and you can't do anything to it. Or you figured out how to wire somebody and then just before they go on set, the props department puts some necklaces yeah. around them. And you yeah. think, okay, got to rethink or this. Or the and... guy does 500 push-ups or something like that. Yeah. What about you, David? Any particular shows costume-wise that you felt... I once went to a costume designer before the show. Forget her name. She, her, her mother was a sculptor who did the Baftas, created the Baftas. Forget her name. Lovely lady, English. And um, she was really great. She, I mean, I I had pointed her out to her in the, in the script where I believe I was going to have to use radio mics and it would be great if they had, you know, if you had costumes that were easy to mic, you know, fabrics that were not going to make noise. And she complied. It was really terrific. I tried it once again. It didn't work out at all. Yeah. And uh, there was always something that you could do, but you wouldn't know until you really saw it. You know, like, for instance, Amy Irving on a film I did that Ronnie was in, uh, Ronnie Howard was in. Um, they were love interests, actually, in that little film. Um, and she had... It was like an 1800s kind of a buttoned up all the way to the neck kind of a dress. And it was crimly and made all kinds of noise. And even though the radio mics were big and she had a lot of hair, I w- and she was wearing a hat. The transmitter went on the head 
and we put the microphone, the NECM 50, because it dripped down, we were able to sort of, you know, like use that. We got the shot that way. There's always some, some way you would be able to sort of manufacture a, a recording technique that uh, would help you through. And Bill, with Tony Scott, multiple cameras, was you talked about the fact of earlier wide shots and then going in for coverage. Was there any a time where you say, you know, this is this is I, I just can't get this on the on the boom here and the radios just aren't working? Would he listen? Or would he say, I'd love to help you with well, we got I, to? I don't think I'd say that. Okay. Uh, um, <laughs> You'd be I mean, that wouldn't I, be the language. It, no, I, I, I carry in my head something very early from John Landis um, when, when you'd say to him, you know, you shot the wide shot, um, the, the static super wide, you know, many, many times. Could we turn it off? And he would say, if you were any fucking good, you could do it. And so I carry that in my head a lot. Um, and I answer my own question, so I, I try and think a little harder. Um, I mean, you want the stuff to work. You know, sometimes uh, you just, it's all about a radio mic. Mm -hmm. And it's all about that little guy performing perfectly. It's all its all on that. Well, yeah. that, that brings me to a film, uh, I think it was uh, Tony Scott's last film, Unstoppable, all set in a train. Was that pretty much radio mics you lived every yeah, but, day with? Yeah, but again, it's it's getting that thing quiet. Uh, again, Tony would let me do the, the craziest stuff. I said, pull the wheels off the uh, locomotive and lathe them very accurately. Have them all turned on a lathe and polished. And the railroad thought, what the hell? And uh, that was a quiet train. So at which point in the process did you think of that or immediately you thought that's going to be an issue? Well, they had a truing machine there. and uh, But, they, you know, it, I don't know if they used it before or whatever. It was really an old, old facility that they were able to use. And the studio paid a lot of money to put together some really old tracks and stuff. And some of the, some of the unions on the rails were so bad it was actually dangerous. So we, we had them trued up and uh, the studio put a lot of money into getting that those tracks. But part of it was really quieting the, uh, the wheels and quieting. We went out the first day and they, uh, Tony actually had a cab made. Um, the, real, the real train is a flatbed and then they built a cab because he wanted to dolly through the cab. So we, we did a full roundy roundy. And the, um, so it was a shortened cab and they welded it, but then they put a skin on it. And I, I said to Tony, I said, um, I want them to pull all the interior out of the cab and I want them to gusset with a triangular weld at every intersection and at the square tubing that creates the hole because it was creaking. The whole thing was creaking. And again, it was one of those, who are you and why? You know, what? You're kidding. And um, so they brought in a crew all night, pulled everything out, and welded triangular gussets, four, four per side, eight per intersection of all of this tubing. And the um, thing was dead quiet. And then we just went on, made the movie in the cab, and it was very quiet. 
So it was just you and... And we had a three-person crew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we had four rigs, and we just call it by what it was. Um, I mean, it got down to a little um, 744, you know, but... uh, And we had all these different, depending on the shots, because he had three helicopters, and he had communication. Um, I think there were seven full camera crews and three helicopter camera crews, a Russian arm and two insert cars all going at once. And the biggest thing was communication. That was, and he wanted to see all the monitors and talk to every single person, regardless where they were. It was much easier to record the film than it was to have the communication for the film. That was a nightmare. You had mentioned to me before just how important it was to develop a good relationship with actors and give them their space. When I introduce myself, I tell them if they're on a radio mic, I'll remind them and that they can rest assured that when they go off the set or they speak privately, that they will not be um, in other people's ears, that they're they're private. And uh, that's that's a great rapport starter right there. I mean, radio mics are a great tool and they can be overused. I mean, how do you see their place? I mean, uh, because I think of uh, Robert Allman films couldn't have been done without multi-tracking. Did you resist at all at any time? Yeah, very heavily. Um, But um, a lot of directors will say, they're radio mic'd, right? And um, so I've gotten caught several times saying, no, we're getting him well on the boom. Um, I don't care. I want him. When people come to my set, I want him radio mic'd. And now younger PAs, when an actor comes uh, on the set, they bring them right Right to to the the sound cart to get radio mic'd. And I'll say, it's not your decision. uh, Mm -hmm. We don't need them radio mic'd. It's a tight head close up. And well, uh, I think you're supposed to. I said, "Well, thanks, thanks for your suggestion." <laughs> so you kind of, kind of laugh now and just go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the you know I'm older and it's another generation with different or lack of mentoring um, the way that that we learned. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there is that that difference. Just on the subject of mentoring, when I was in Belfast. I would always look at who did the sign in films, and I saw Bill Kaplan, David McMillan. When you were at the th- movies in the 70s, is there any sound mixers apart? You know, we touched on Jack Solomon, Jim Alexander. Was there anybody out there that you had met or had a kind of profound effect on you? I met Jim Alexander, and, and I just thought he was a really nice guy. I think he had that reputation. Yeah. And I met a couple of other guys that wouldn't talk to me, simply wouldn't talk to me. I'd ask them, why are you doing that? Or why, you know, this or that? And one guy said, when you're 695, I'll talk to you. What about you, David? Any particular mixers that you had met or had an influence? As I said, Jack Solomon and and, um, uh, Jim Alexander, I I, I met at... um, an Oscar luncheon and had a little chat with him. A nice fellow. Um, but the mixers that I knew 
they, uh, and I heard so much from other people that I was sort of different than I'm not, I wasn't the curmudgeon where there are a lot of the mixers in the old days were real curmudgeons. And I was quite happy to be on the set. I, you know, I could tell my kids that this is the, you know, the kids I teach at C, UCLA, um, that the most fun they're going to have in a film is working on the set, no matter what you do. And sound, we have the, the uh, opportunity to ask questions about what's going on when you're uh, when they're lighting a set. But when we're shooting a set, nobody can talk to you. So they can't ask you questions when you start doing what you're doing. But um, I had just heard horror stories about people. And I, I thought, God, that's, you know, that's really crazy. I, my, for my boom operators, well, Duke worked with Jimmy Webb, and Jimmy would stay in the truck and run hundreds of yards of cable. and did not want to go to the set, but he was a darn good mixer, you know. And he was a, he was a. Uh, I liked Jimmy, I, you know, and I'd, I'd I'd heard about him and I knew of his work, you know, and I, I remember what he did in Nashville. That I thought, boy, that's brilliant, you know. Really, really by reputation, not really by my meeting or knowing anybody. Right. I mean, because of where we are, and I touched this earlier with the uh, social media, there's an accessibility to mm -hmm. everybody that there wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. 40 years ago. There's a great ability for you to, to reach out and help. And I know that you're uh, teaching at USC Mentoring. Maybe you could just uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I teach uh, 546, which is an MFA class, and uh, we have seven disciplines, and we make three films, three 12-minute films each semester, and I get six uh, students, uh, two students per film doing sound, and uh, I get three weeks to teach them a 644 and uh, radio miking and booming. And, and I stress on them the importance of booming, that booming is the, the you always have a, a boom mic open, even if it is radio mic, you want the boom mic open, you want to get, you want to open up the radio mics just so that you get a little bit of a, a feeling of the atmosphere. And uh, then I tell them that they're going to really have a lot of fun with sound. And I tell them things that you know, have happened during the process of making films and particularly for sound. Um, and then they go out their test weekend and they come back and we see the dailies and then I make notes and I go in and I tell them, hey, this is what you've done and this is what you should do. It's great for me. I, I feel really happy with it, that I can share this you know, knowledge with uh, with these kids. And then I kind of stick with, right all the way through with them, Peter, and finish off with the mix as well too, do the music spotting sessions, do the effects where they want to when you want to do Foley, we work with them on those. Bill, in those early days, you were saying that the sound community wasn't that welcoming for people on the outside. You know, how do you feel now about people that reach out to you? Um, I adore it. And I'm, I'm very welcoming of people. Um, and, and I really support their interest. Um, I, I do go to a lot of universities and I'll teach a one-time class or whatever. But recently, actually, I'll send them, uh, whoever requests, I'll send them my resume first and say, I don't know, maybe you want to get a feel. Uh, I know you are familiar with what I've done, but uh, my experience is that so many students have never heard or seen most of the films that I've done. So I don't know how relevant I would be. 
Um, and sometimes that's actually the case. Uh, so they'll circulate the resume or they'll read off films and see who's seen them. And a lot of them have have never heard of Animal House, you know, or Blues <laughs> Brothers or whatever. And I think that's what happens when you get old. So when you go out and you do go out and, mm-hmm. and do a, a mm-hmm. guest lecture, mm-hmm. what does it feel like for you? Do you find these inspiring? Do you find these we're in good hands here in terms of yeah, the next generation uh, yeah, of filmmaker. I'm, I'm surprised that the kids are so uh, so interested. Um, they truly are. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's it's very common on a feature or whatever, an important project that you'll have a behind the scenes crowd um, camera and sound and sound will give you a a transmitter to plug in and they'll go around and do all their stuff. And um, there was a producer um, who came up and stood next to me while I'm mixing. And when we cut, he said, what are you doing? (laughs) I said, I'm mixing. He said, do they know it? (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're changing levels. I said, that's my job. He said, uh, we just record at 100% everything. Uh, I didn't know you're allowed to. You're really affecting what, what you're recording. And I said, I hope I am. <laughs> and and that, just that, that sense of, of change of time, you know, from reality TV where you carry a bag of 18 radios as just a, a forest of antennas. Mm-hmm. And the boom is there maybe for sticks, mm-hmm. and that's it. And um, it's often that every once in a while I give back. I'll get on some little teeny production. I, I did a little film in Farsi, um, you know, and, and I'll, I'll grab someone from the set and maybe do the third boom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and people, uh, young crew people will say, I've seen a boom used for, for the slate. But you really use it for the actors as well. <laughs> it's amazing. Isn't it's it, amazing. Huh? Yeah. I say, yeah, I'm using all three. And if, you know, I could even put a fourth in there. Yeah. I'd, I've done it many times and I'd always use the uh, on set painter because they're used to <laughs> <a> bull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So if I was to look at what would you say was the hardest film of your career, most challenging? Um, well, all those that, that we did deferments on, <laughs> we didn't get paid. <laughs> those, uh, Crimson Tide was hard. It was really hard. I mean, I, I really did go in the bathroom and, you know, <laughs> ask our creator, are you sure this is what I'm supposed to be doing? <laughs> and if there's a piece of equipment today that you could say, oh, if I only had that Back then, I wouldn't have had to go into the bathroom. <laughs> um, uh, auto mix. <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, I mean, I, you know, I, I, as I've said, I, I can struggle with the equipment, but it's only my fear of the new. Once I got it, I got it, you know. And if it's broken down enough times and I've had that occasion to understand how it goes wrong, um, 
I'm good with it. But it, it's changing pretty rapidly nowadays, you know. And uh, were you happy to see us move away from debt? Oh, oh debt yeah. was terrible. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> god. Oh my god. But Either you'd see. Yeah. You'd either see the, the, the raindrop in the window yeah. or the door wouldn't open or, you know, there were so many error bits that it wasn't transferable. Um, I did Castaway uh, with a DAT and, and it failed. And I remember luckily we had a behind the scenes crew and I grabbed the kid and I said, you know, you're doing Hanks on this one. He's, he's got like three words this week. Um, so, so the background guy came in, I said, just, I'll boom it. Just you record it. I'll share with you the most embarrassing moment, um, with Tony Scott on, um, true romance, uh, Brad Pitt. Uh, we didn't know who he was, you know, um, he does this stone marijuana stoned thing mm-hmm. where the Italian guy comes to James Gandolfini comes to the screen door and asks him where the bad guys, where's the, and he does this incredible, totally stoned, ridiculous, wonderful scene. I had just gotten my Nagra rebuilt, and uh, there's a little wire, a ground wire that goes over the the pots, and when the lid comes down, it shorted it. So the pilotone worked, the modulometer worked, you heard it wonderfully well, and it did not record a thing. <laughs> and I, I didn't tape return it. Uh-huh. I didn't do the little switch. So, we broke for lunch. I listened to it. The whole, the whole morning's work, all of Brad Pitt, not a thing on it. And I told Tony, <laughs> I mean, that's where you want to die. You just mm-hmm. want to go yeah. get a job on the docks and do something else. <laughs> And I explained it to him, and he said, well, we'll send it to a lab, and we'll dig it out. And I said, Tony, there's nothing. It's just like you went to the store and bought a new roll of tape. There is nothing on it whatsoever. And he said, oh, I see. And we went back, and we reshot it. And he was so much better. (laughs) And Tony came up to me, and he said, good going, man. (laughs) So, you know. That's great. David, any embarrassing stories you want to share there now that we're on that subject? Well, yeah. Um, actually, it was, <laughs> I had a stereonagra and I had um, my, my, my boom operator. Uh, I had to go to the bathroom and I said, would you please change the role for me, would you? And uh, he changed the role and it was gone. I got back and we started recording. And again, I'm not listening to playback, which I always do. You know, this is the one time I don't (laughs) listen to the playback. And we get to the end of the the scene and I look and I see the tape is over the the hum head they had on on the record head. So, you know, there's a little something on there, but it's nothing you can use. So fortunately it was a... a commercial that I was doing. I can't either tell the guy, well, we couldn't do it again because like it was a reality commercial. So what I did, I went and got the uh, playback guy just to you know, send me a feed, yeah, you know. Exactly. You That's know. been many, <laughs> many times. And, you know, everything worked out fine. Nobody yeah. knew a thing. Two more things come to mind. Just putting this to both of you before we wrap it up here. Um, George Waters 
worked with Tony Scott for many years as his supervising sound editor. As a role of a production mixer, did you over the years develop relationships with the teams like Tony Scott's, uh, Robert Zemeckis, John Landis? Uh, not really. Tony did not want any outside effects ever brought into his movies that weren't recorded during the production. So we recorded everything about trains, you know, pulleys and God knows what. We had hundreds of tracks. And he he hired me to work with the effects cutters really to police the fact that they would not go out <laughs> and bring anything in. And um, uh, so, I mean, I did that, you know. And I, but that was his believing in the total authenticity right. of the locations where right. he was at with the equipment that he was using, trains that he was using. Right. And, that, and that carried through through all of his films? No, just, just that one. Just that one, but um, Randy Tom a lot mm-hmm. because um, he does all Zemeckis' stuff. Mm-hmm. And what about you, David, just in terms of post-production? I've gotten calls from dialogue cutters afterwards who've told me, great job, it was really simple to cut your tracks, which is always very nice to hear, you know, you don't hear it very often. I'd like to thank David and Bill for coming in today and sharing their experiences. Who hasn't had those heart-stopping moments on set? In wrapping up, I'd like to play a little montage from their body of work, and I'm sure you'll recognize many of the films and their amazing careers. care what anything was designed to do. I care about what it can do. You didn't leave me. Didn't have anywhere to be just then. My mom always said, life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? My question is, why can't one change the past? Because I can smell it. It's in the air, and I smell it. Do you smell it? Because I smell it. It's about talking to women, and I know how to do that because I observe, because I am a novelist. You are Jean Wilder, the novelist? Yes, I am. I read your books. We men are the monsters now. The time of heroes is dead, Wiglof. I didn't save your life, so you shouldn't be thinking you have to say something to me or anything. I won't ever wonder if I'll suspend the rest of my life. Now, what we got here... It's a little game of show and tell. You don't want to show me nothing, but you tell me everything. I don't even know what that means. No one knows what it means, but it's provocative. No, it's not. It's it gets gross. the people it, going. Toga, 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 Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Utah, give me two. Americans, Hercules, let's go! Eric, let's go. 